Hello, welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Tom Lodice. I'm a professor at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Stratton VA Medical Center in Albany, New York. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for pharmacotherapy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Alexandra Conready and Dr. Jason Gallagher about their paper entitled, Short Courses of Antibiotics for Bacterial Infections, a Systematic Review of Randomized Control Trials. Um, this will appear in the June edition of Pharmacotherapy, what is currently available as an, online as an accepted manuscript. Alex is an infectious disease clinical pharmacist at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children in Philadelphia. Jason is a professor at Temple University, a clinical pharmacist specialist in infectious diseases at Temple University Hospital, and he also comes to us from Philadelphia. Alex and Jason, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. Well, first, I'd like to thank you for um, pulling together this paper. Um, it's very timely. Um, as we all know, this is an issue that always comes up. It seems we have figured out the right dose for the right patient, uh, but a clinical issue that you know we still struggle with is duration of therapy. Uh, so, I guess my first question for you is, you know, why should cl clinicians consider using shorter courses of antibiotics in situations where data suggests short and long courses have similar efficacies? In other words, you know, why should we be actively promoting shorter courses of antibiotics for our patients? So we should actively promote using shorter courses of antibiotics and avoiding longer courses when possible, because like all other medications, antibiotics are not benign and do have negative unintended consequences, um, including a risk of a subsequent infection with a resistant organism, C. diff infection, and adverse effects from the antibiotics themselves. Secondly, it's imperative that we preserve the efficacy of, of the antimicrobials we have and minimize the development of resistant, resistance or selection of resistant organisms. Excessive antibiotic use in individuals does lead to an eventual, eventual but inevitable decline in antibiotic utility across the societal ecosystem. Um, because of this, because after resistant organisms emerge, they're eventually going to be transmitted from one individual to another. So the bottom line is really the more we use, the more antibiotics we use, the more we select for drug-resistant organisms. So by minimizing the overall exposure, we can slow the rate in which de resistance develops and spreads. And I feel to add to what Alex said, I feel like people have this almost psychological bond with antibiotics that they have to hold on to them and give them for so long when it's really the first dose or the first couple of doses that do most of the work. And uh, the overall duration of therapy is are really relatively poorly studied. And Jason, I would agree. I think a lot of that, you know, comes from what we see in the media. You know, the one thing we always hear is if your doctor gives you a, an antibiotic, make sure you finish the full course, even if it's 10 to 14 days, even if, as you say, they feel better after day one or two. So that kind of leads me to my next question. I thought you did a very nice job in your in your paper providing you know some of the history. So you know why you know what really led to using these very prolonged courses of antibiotics. You know you know why why are we using weeks upon months in certain circumstances where more recent data says we can get away with shorter courses? It's really hard to date back to when this concept actually began of treating for longer durations than is clinically indicated. It seems to be that from this study done in 1945 by Meads and colleagues, 
where patients with pneumococcal pneumonia were treated with penicillin, and they noted that there were three relapses in 44 patients that had survived. And so from this study, they drew the conclusion that prolonging the course beyond the resolution of fever and symptoms may be necessary to prevent relapse. Um, and then some point, this theory further evolved to like what you said, is you have to complete your course of antibiotics or you're going to have a relapse or you can even uh, cause an infection with resistant organisms. And it's kind of ironic I, that some of the patients that have been what we would call non-compliant and stopping their antibiotics when they feel better might be <laughs> might have been doing the right thing all along. But it was uh, also ironic to me that this was the hardest thing to find when we put this paper together. Actually finding the studies and going through the data is fairly easy, but tracking down the history of where all this came from was much more difficult. And when you go back looking at these early studies you know, that were treating people for just one, two, sometimes three days max, uh, for pneumococcal sepsis or pneumonia with sepsis with what we would consider to be pretty low doses of penicillin, um, patients did pretty well. And it's sort of just grown really out of control since then. All right, well, thank you for that. So, you know, the one thing I always think about when you do these, these systematic literature reviews, and I've been involved in a number of them, is, you know, what do you focus on? You know, how do you best answer your question? So, you know, for the readership, of pharmacotherapy, um, I always think it's good to, to kind of understand from the authors is, you know, what, how did you decide upon just looking at randomized clinical trials and, and across these single agent randomized clinical trials, um, what endpoints did you, do, um, did you feel were most important? We decided to look at randomized, uh, randomized controlled trials because uh, you want to see how the patients that actually received the short course do compared to those that received long course. Whereas retrospective, uh, you're not getting, it's not the same data, doesn't hold the same clout as a prospective randomized trial. Um, move, in terms of why we focused on single agent randomized trials, this is to remove any confounders on those patients being treated with additional antibiotics. But in the studies of ventilator-associated pneumonia, antibiotics were selected at the discretion of the physician. Um, but since this was consistent among, across both groups, we did deem them to be eligible for inclusion. I think um, this is an area that's almost dangerous to use the, I, I, dangerous might be a bit of a stretch, but retrospective studies you know, are very useful. Most of the research I do is retrospective, but this is an area where there's a little bit of danger in self-selection of the shorter and longer courses. Uh, prospectively, you don't know what, you know what the patient's going to be like going forward. Retrospectively, you know how they did. And studies that go back to say, eh, it really was about this day that the patient started to turn, I think are a little um, potentially biased. Uh, yeah, I thought you're, and you're getting at what I was looking for, you know, the selection bias or the prescribing bias. I just reviewed a paper that this issue came up. So um, I think you're really getting at the heart of why we can't really look at retrospective studies for this. I'm a little concerned retrospectively at studies that look at, you know, like what was the time at which people needed to be treated. So yeah, they really got better at day five and extending it to day 10 didn't really make a difference. I think that's a little different. Or if they look at uh, patients that went into a cohort one way or the other based upon 
you know, how long they were ultimately treated and then compare their outcomes. Again, the treating clinicians might be treating the people with the short courses for a shorter duration because they look healthier, because they look like they're doing better. So that's why we chose to do only the uh, randomized trials. No, Jason, I would agree with that. I mean, I think anytime you look at um, studies uh, of this nature, in which are retrospective, there's always the potential for prescribing bias. And, you know, more often than not, we'll shorten therapy in someone who's responding and, and keep it longer and those who are not. So to, to kind of answer this question, to answer it well, um, I, I agree with your decision just to focus on uh, single agent randomized trials where possible. Um, so, you know, and, and looking at your review, I, I think you did a very nice job summarizing all the studies and, and drawing conclusions and, and, what, and what is reflected in the guidelines and what it's not. So I think the first one is, you know, community-acquired pneumonia. Um, you know, what is the current recommended um, duration of therapy for these patients? We agree with the current IDSA guidelines that the minimum duration for community-acquired pneumonia is five days. We also do do think that there are instances where perhaps three days would be affected, would be effective, excuse me, um, as indicated in the studies included in this review. So I think sort of ironically, uh, one of my favorite studies ever uh, was that DAPTO versus ceftriaxone for a community-acquired pneumonia study, where they didn't know at the time that giving DAPTO was essentially placebo. Um, and the people who got a dose of ceftriaxone before they got DAPTO actually did pretty well in that study compared to the full course of ceftriaxone. So that kind of really makes you wonder how many days of therapy we need to be giving anyone. Essentially, one dose of ceftriaxone was fairly effective. Uh, I would love to see someone study that. No, I would agree. And I, I guess the other question that comes up, and a lot of this is based on you know, some of the studies um, done with levofloxacin for patients with community-acquired pneumonia, is do we need larger doses? I mean, do, do you need to give a, a larger dose up front if you want to treat um, five days? Um, you know, is, is that a requirement? So it's hard to say if you need larger doses when you're using the shorter courses, since the only study that looked at this was the levofloxacin study. Um, but I would tend to lean towards no, we don't need to use higher doses since every other study compared uh, same equivalent doses between the two groups. So I think that we could probably get away with using the same dose in both groups in, in the shorter duration. Yeah, that study, it was nice for them to do it to show that to bring in some more of this five-day um, or the evidence that five days is good enough. But it would, really would have been nice from a clinical standpoint, it would have been five days of 500 versus 10 days of 500 instead of what was probably more of a marketing standpoint of uh, using the higher dose for the five days and the creation of what was it, the Leva pack or, or something like that. Matter of fact, you know, a lot of the duration of therapy uh, for these lower respiratory tract infections has probably all been chasing the um, five dose, the five days of azithromycin convenient packs that have been prescribed so much over the years. All right, Jason. So you and Alex are, are really cha uh, challenging some paradigms here and. Um, you know, even you know, in our clinical practice right now, you know, it's very difficult to get some of our providers to move off 10 to 14 days for pneumonia. And you know, we, we always discuss the guidelines and, and bring forth some of the issues that you mentioned. But the one we struggle with is, you know, in, in a patient who's non-responding, you know, it's day three, um, you know, you, you, they still have not achieved clinical stability. 
Um, the antibiotic you give, we largely treat empiric. And, you know, for that non-responding patient, is, is five days sufficient? Um, you know, or, or, and if we do need to go longer, is there any data to help us to decide definitively in those individuals how long we do need to treat? Well, I think it's important to separate those people from um, the majority of patients that can be prescribed a course and, and you're done with them. Um, those patients aren't who's in these clinical studies. So if they're not responsive at day three and you're talking that they're basically halfway through a five-day course, maybe they're right about to turn the corner and maybe they aren't. But I don't want you know the short courses to be used as this blanket um, statement that every person should get that. You know, a lot of those patients can have various complications that are going on. We're also assuming that the prescribed drug is active against what they have. And to be honest, when you're talking about community-acquired pneumonia, pretty often you're not even sure that they actually have that um, if it's someone in the hospital with a complicated past medical history of COPD and heart failure and this and that and so forth. So I, I would uh, take a step back in applying some of the uh, studies that have been out there to the, the non-responding patient. So how about hospital-acquired pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia? Should we be considering five to seven days in those patients as well? In patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia or hospital-acquired pneumonia, seven days does seem to be an optimal duration of treatment for these patients, um, assuming that they've received appropriate antibiotics throughout the duration of, throughout the entire duration of treatment. And this is one of the areas that's the, the I find clinically the hardest to convince people to, to stop therapy. And it's psychological as much as anything else. The patients are there, they're on it, they're on the antibiotic, they're turning the corner, but they don't go from sick to well if they're on a ventilator. You know, they're usually not on that ventilator because they had pneumonia in the first place. Their underlying disease states are driving quite a bit of the problem. Um, but the evidence doesn't support these prolonged courses being given for forever. And I think another phenomenon there that we're all pretty familiar with is reculturing patients sort of excessively and finding the next resistant pathogen and the next resistant pathogen, whether the patients have the clinical signs of illness or not. So the one thing that, that really comes up a lot, um, Jason, Alex, and this really comes from the Chastra study, you know, the multi-center study conducted in Europe is, you know, there seem to be some benefit using longer courses of therapy in, in patients with Haprovap due to pseudomonas. And, you know, um, what are your feelings on that? Are, are we confident at this point we can use seven days of, of a treatment course in someone who gets early appropriate therapy and is responding with pseudomonas aeruginosa, um, Haprovap? Yeah, I think we should be confident in treating for seven days if they are responding to therapy. Um, in that study that you mentioned, the mortality, so although they did find that there may be associated with higher relapse or infection recurrence in the shorter course group, they did also note that there was no difference in 21-day or 90-day mortality between the two groups. So clinically, the patients in both groups did just as well. And if we do end up treating for longer, we are exposing them to more antibiotics and increasing the risk, risk of uh, secondary infections such as C. diff. Or if they do have another infection, it could be with a resistant organism, higher likelihood. And I agree, Tom. When I first read that story or that, uh, that, that um, study, I kind of had the same interpretation and didn't apply 
the same thing that, you know, we should treat the pseudomonal or the non-fermenters for a shorter period of time until more evidence has come out that has suggested that we can and that the recurrence is, is not truly an issue. There's also a little bit of an issue in the design of some of these studies that the patients who are on antibiotics for a shorter period of time uh, in some of the studies actually have more time to relapse um, or to recur than the patients that are on it for a longer period of time. And that's just uh, based upon the, the way that they designed them in the first place. And it was a sort of interesting little quirk that we uncovered when we were looking a little bit deeper. All right, thank you. Um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit, how about intra-abdominal infections? And, you know, I, I think most of us have shortened courses of therapy there in our practice, um, but this is an issue that just came up for us on rounds the other day is, you know, how many days post-source control should we treat, um, especially in a patient who has a successful surgery and is responding well? I think source control is the mainstay of treatment. We really should try to uh, minimize antibiotics as much as possible. So four days does seem to be appropriate for four days post, uh, post source control does seem to be appropriate um, and as efficacious as continuing the antibiotics for longer. And this includes patients that even presented with sepsis. They did just as well as uh, in the less complicated groups. Now, I feel like this is one of the areas that's been studied the best and that it was a fairly clean no pun intended for intra-abdominal infections, uh, studies that show that the shorter course is just as good. It really a surgical illness more than anything else. How about skin infections? I mean, I know, I know the recommendation now is, is for five days, um, very consistent um, with CAP and um, other infection types we talked about, but um, are, you know, do you believe that that is supports that? And you know, even for our more complicated skin infections, um, do you believe five days is sufficient? It was surprising that there's not a lot of data on the duration of therapy for skin and soft tissue infections, um, specifically even for those complicated skin infections. I tend to say that five days is probably enough just based on those studies that have compared an antibiotic versus uh, no antibiotic post on. Uh, incision and drainage, uh, those patients did fairly well uh, that did not receive an antibiotic. So as long as there has been a good IND and no infection does not remain, there's no bone involvement, five days is probably adequate. Yeah, it's interesting that those studies that we're looking at really whether there's any necessity of antibiotic therapy after uh, incision and drainage of both kind of mild to moderate skin infections. Uh, found a benefit to antibiotics, but it was a pretty small one and uh, didn't really do a lot to separate who the needs antibiotics from the non-needs antibiotics people were. But I think that it does leave kind of this in-between where a short burst or a course of antibiotics um, of just a few days would probably be make that difference up. So that's sort of an opinion instead of going on the science that was actually done in those studies. All right, thank you. So. Um you know, kind of shifting again for uncomplicated cystitis. I think this is one of the places where there's been the highest rate of adapt adaptation of using, using uh, shorter courses of therapy. <clears throat> but could you really describe the length of therapy for different antibiotic classes? I think this is the one thing that a lot of clinicians um, forget when they use drugs for uncomplicated cystitis. Yeah, it's interesting, Tom, because this is the area that seems to be the most drug dependent, um, that 
you know, we know that three days of uh, TMP sulfa or uh, fluoroquinolone, aside from oxyfloxacin, of course, are, are adequate um, and even better than three days of beta-lactams. And whether this is due to the concentration-dependent nature of those antibiotics versus the time-dependent nature of beta-lactams, uh, we can only speculate. And another study has shown that five days of nitroferantoin uh, which is a very effective drug, drug for uncomplicated cystitis with low resistance rates is adequate as well, and that we don't have to give the seven to 10 days of that agent that used to be done. Unfortunately, the data for the beta-lactams is not there, and I do not recommend three-day courses of beta-lactams for uncomplicated cystitis uh, based upon the twice that the two times they've been compared to ciprofloxacin and been shown to be less effective. Um, on another hand, there was a study done recently with a single dose of phosphomycin, which is recommended in IDSA guidelines compared to a five-day course of nitroferantoin, where the single dose of phosphomycin was inferior, which is unfortunate. You know, it could very well be a useful agent, and whether it's an issue of the agent itself or not treating long enough, uh, we don't know based upon that study. Um, but it's not every short course study is going to be effective and a single dose may not be adequate. Um, how about complicated cystitis and pyelonephritis? Uh, is, is seven days enough? Um, do they need seven days of IV only? Um, how about, you know, even thinking about a lot of these patients have secondary bacteremia. And this is an issue that always comes up in practice is, you know, how long do we need to treat these patients for? In patients with complicated cystitis or pyelonephritis, um, excluding those with any abnormalities. Uh, seven days is probably good enough to treat them. Um, and this includes those that had a, back, a secondary bacteremia. Um, in those patients, in, in these studies that we included, uh, patients that had a bacteremia did just as well in the short course group as in if they had received a prolonged course of antibiotics. Um, but to note, most of these studies look at fluoroquinolones. Uh, and which we often can't always use the fluoroquinolone. So I think we do need more studies looking at beta-lactams or other antibiotics uh, for the treatment of cystitis, complicated cystitis or pyelonephritis. Yeah, I think the bacteremia issue, to me, I probably shouldn't say this to something being recorded, but I think bacteremia is overrated. And I'm sure there are a great deal of bacteremic patients um, that we treat all the time and we don't know that they're bacteremic because no one's checking a blood culture in a local physician's office. And it's a young woman with pilo who's, who's febrile, you know, a good proportion of those people are bacteremic and they do just fine with oral therapies and they do just fine with short course oral therapies. Now, I didn't think of this before, but, you know, as, as our discussion of these urinary tract infections goes on, uh, really is an area that's ripe for more study because the primary agents that have been well studied are those that the resistance rates are just going up and up and up to, particularly the fluoroquinolones. And since there does seem to be a difference between the type of agent here and the ability to use the short courses, clearly it's an area where we need more uh, research as we lose our oral options. All right, thank you. And um, so I guess the one thing, I think you did an excellent job summarizing uh, what's available in the literature. I, I think you make some compelling arguments for your recommendations, um, nearly all of which are concordant with guideline recommendations. But you know, it always it always comes down to this to me is, you know, how do we incorporate this into clinical practice? You know, what can stewardship programs do 
to foster shorter courses of therapy, uh, particularly um, you know, with our longstanding clinicians who are accustomed using 21 days for a, a complicated um, urinary tract infection, or you know, for HAPVAP, it's you know, a minimum of 14 days. So how do we change practice effectively at our institutions and, and really move that paradigm to um, what's highlighted in, in your nice systematic literature review? So it's ironic that you bring that up because this was our goal um, from the start was to come up for not really a roadmap, but a, a summary of data for clinicians in stewardship programs to uh, have as a sort of central database of where where is the evidence that they can tackle this and bring it to their committees and uh, say, look, we've got to to work here to to shorten. Um, our, our overall antibiotic or decrease our overall antibiotic exposure. And I'll talk, to, I'll let Alex talk about some of the specific, specific ways of doing that. But um, and to me, it's often easier to convince, it's not easy to convince people to not give extended courses, but it's easier to stop the use of a broad spectrum antibiotic than to prevent it from being started in the first place in someone who quote unquote looks sick. And we were thinking that, um, Perhaps a better way of decreasing overall antimicrobial exposure is by working on the courses of therapy more so than sort of stopping that exposure up front when people are afraid of treating a sick patient. Alex? I think one of the biggest uh, ways that we could implement shorter courses of therapy in practice is to uh, use automatic stop dates when initially prescribing antibiotics. And having a discussion at the end of treatment if there needs to be, if there is a reason that treatment does need to be extended. Uh, but I also think that we need to start focusing on antibiotic prescribing at discharge. Um, so recently there was a study in CID which looked at the total duration of antibiotic use both inpatient and outpatient in adults with uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia. And what they found was that the total length of therapy was nine and a half days in both groups and that 70% of all patients exceeded the recommended length of therapy, uh, which translated into about three days of excessive antibiotics per patient. Uh, so it emphasizes the need for improved stewardship at hospital discharge, um, not just in the inpatient setting. And I think CDC and some other groups have done a very good job of increasing the focus on outpatient antimicrobial stewardship, which is clearly a difficult area to uh, extend into for more reasons than we can get into right now. But I think we've all been, you know, who work in hospitals, been in the situation where someone has prescribed something on discharge and presumably they go and fill it when they've gotten better. And, you know, maybe the last, what they really need upon discharge is another day of antibiotics, if that, and not a whole new course, which is often prescribed by default um, as someone approaches uh, discharge and essentially starts over for for no reason. And um, as we branch into our improved efforts in the antimicrobial stewardship on the outpatient side, this is kind of like some of the low-hanging fruit where we actually have a little bit of uh, control or, or influence in a more controlled environment. Uh, all right, excellent. So uh, Alex, and Jason, uh, thank you for your time today. Um, thank you for um, putting this systematic literature review together and, and really arming our stewardship programs with a way to advocate for shorter course therapies, both within our hospitals and the outpatient setting.
this concludes our podcast. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.